A while ago, we asked you what one thing you would like to see change in reenacting that would really improve the hobby for you. We got an overwhelming response, so stand by as we share your thoughts and ours. Before we kick off, I'm just going to mention that the sound quality on some of this episode is not really the best, and I'm sorry for that. The reason for that is because we recorded it out in the field. Uh, We hope that doesn't spoil your enjoyment of this episode of The Reenactor's Corner. Today's episode is going to be kind of uh, interesting. I think it's going to be a question and answer session. Um, this stems from a Facebook post that we made. Um, we made it on the uh, Reenactors Corner Facebook account, uh, which you can check out and follow on Facebook. We also shared it in a group that's kind of a general reenactor discussion group on Facebook. And um, the question that was posed was, what do you think would improve your reenacting experience in your part of the world? And so we're going to read the questions and we're going to respond to them. So for the panel for today to respond to this, uh, in addition to myself, there's two other guys from my unit. There is Ben, who's been a frequent guest, Ben Tracy, a.k.a. Ben Longfellow, a.k.a. Wacky Waving Inflatable Arm Flailing Tube Man. Ben, <laughs> welcome back to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Uh, in addition, we have Billy Graff, the uh, super spooky uh, gift writer from 195. How are you doing today, Billy? I didn't realize I was spooky. Eternal Century? Eternal, Eternal Century. Century. Okay. Um, so let's just jump right into this stuff. All right, I'm going to bring this up. So the first response we had was from previous podcast guest Mike Snyder. Uh, his his idea for what would make reenactment better? More unit cooperation. The hobby won't get better unless units start working together towards a common goal. What do you think about this, Ben? I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think one of the nice things we have going for us in New England is uh, us and 195 and the local Soviet Union, the 26th Rifles, have a very good working relationship. And a lot of us have dual membership, and that just makes coordination and sort of collaborative projects much easier. Um, yeah, so I couldn't agree more. Philly? Um, yeah, I mean, I think Ben just did a good job summing that up. Um, uh, you know, anything from um, an individual unit level to a larger hobby perspective, getting people on the same page is what helps things become more of a, uh, a well-oiled and functioning machine. Um, you know, obviously it's harder said than done, but it's certainly a, a goal to work uh, towards that makes things uh, uh, function a lot easier and a lot smoother and a lot better. Sure, and even on um, sort of a, a nationwide basis, I was at an Indi- I was at an event in Indiana recently, and there were guys who came out from California and uh, you know the the East Coast, and um, I think it's I think that shows sort of interregional uh, cooperation and whatnot, and I think that's a positive. And I suppose that's that's the Mike Snyder twenty six. Yeah. That um, is the Mike Snyder. Um, I mean, and I think out of at least from our area. Anyone knows that 
a better attempt. Um, okay. you know, his unit has a great working relationship with pretty much everyone in the area. Uh, and part of that is because of his willingness and his ability to sort of uh, foster those those uh, relationships and work with people in really productive ways. Can't agree more. Um, so if you're listening, hi, Mike, by the way. Um, I guess, you know, for as far as my unit goes, 195, uh, we owe so many of our greatest successes to our cooperation with Mike's Soviet unit. And, uh, you know, we wouldn't be anywhere near where we are without the help of him and the other guys, our friends in the 26th. And, uh, you know, Mike has certainly been instrumental in working together with other Soviet units in the Northeast. Yeah. It seems to me like reenacting probably isn't really getting bigger right now. I don't really know because COVID has changed everything. But uh, as if reenactment is getting smaller, which it might be, I think we really have to circle the wagons and work more together with our fellow hobbyists. So uh, the next comment is from Matthew Cleaver, who's also in our uh, 195 reenactment unit. He says that reenactment in his area would be better if he had local events where I don't have to drive three hours or navigate other states' stupid gun laws. <laughs> Nobody. Um, I mean, that's unfortunate. Uh, I think he lives in Maine, and there's not a lot of reenactment that happens. Maine is the northernmost state in the United States. It's not a very populated state. I don't know if there's really any reenactment groups up there. Yeah, I mean, I know, you know, I I know some people from like the center of the country, and um, you know, they can, they might have to. Like they, they might have to drive several hours to meet another reenactor, but like he can only really drive in one direction, really. I mean, if he goes north, Canada, border, etc., goes um, east, he hits the ocean. Um, I think there's just, I think there's just some regions of the country that are just unfortunately geographically challenged for reenacting. Um, he mentions the gun laws. Yeah. Um, you know, the re- the reality is is that I think all of the events that he has the opportunity to do are in other states. Yeah, and so that's like other red tape. You know, transporting a firearm. Sure. You know, must make it tough for him. I mean, I know some people aren't willing to go through uh, New York State because of the Safe Act, um, and that's uh, I understand that, and like uh, I myself, you know, get a little worried about getting pulled over sometimes transporting even a Crown D8 because I don't know the local laws and I have a license but uh, still it's nothing that anybody really wants to have to worry about. You would think that his unit commander would loan him a K98 probably the guy is a shitty leader. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard nothing but bad things about that guy. He's an asshole. <laughs> Billy, you want to chime in on this no, uh, local I mean, events issue? I don't really have much else to add to that one. I mean like mm-hmm. if, you know obviously if you don't have to travel as far to an event that's great yeah. um, but you know other than being able to just make them yourself there's really not much you can do with that when it happens it's just you know the cards you're dealt with sure yeah um so the next question is or next answer i guess is from zachary williams he suggests that reenactment would be better if we had events that have the scale to integrate technical non-combat roles sure sure i think it takes a certain critical mass of people to be able to do that like probably greater than 30 um i'm trying to think like what the smallest number it takes um to integrate uh to have that maybe like 50 people or something on like on one side maybe like 100 total what do you what do you guys think tough you know what I, I first of all I agree with him that the scale of events is important. Yeah. You know, to me, um, 
I I like doing events with just you two guys. I like doing events with five people from 195. But um, the more people you have at the event, the more opportunities you have, the more you know possibilities, the yeah. more scenarios you can portray. Events with scale are important. Yeah. I think it, they really are. Um, I was talking to our friend D-Bone today. Yeah. He's a reenactor. He's a so- local Soviet reenactor. And uh, he said he hasn't been to a reenactment since Stalingrad. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I went to the um, event that we did up in Maine, mm-hmm. and I went to the event that we did in Vermont, but those weren't like really reenactments. And, you know, I wasn't really going to push back on him too much about that because um, there's something to be said about going to an event and actually being a part of a larger body of troops than the people that are in your immediate circle. It feels like you're, it feels like you're part of something greater, I think, you know, and like, you know, there's people like who are doing dedicated roles like cooking, you know, or uh, comms or, uh, or uh, medical or... Um yeah it feels uh, the sense of like the scale makes it feel grander and uh more complete in some senses yeah with, with regard to uh technical non-combat roles specifically i mean that's kind of like what our whole unit is about yeah. and then there's the sub you know meta unit of like the headquarters yeah. unit so um certainly as far as technical non-combat stuff goes i mean i'm i'm all for it obviously we all do it sure i mean the whole headquarters thing is is fantastic but i think it it needs a certain setting to take place at uh, you need a building um and i mean we can do it with a fairly small crew but um and it it, it often will service a greater event um but uh yeah i feel like that's sort of setting specific if you will um yeah it, it also like it, the, a headquarters doesn't exist in a vacuum in real life yeah. a headquarters is like an element of a much larger group yeah. so that that's sort of exactly what i was thinking about this i mean like the the two key words in this whole thing events that have the scale to integrate technical and non-combat roles scale and integrate are the two big ones it's the scale to actually do it and then the, what sense does the integration make because yeah. you could certainly integrate headquarters into i don't know kind of any event but if it's grossly disproportionate to what's happening in the field component, it, it gets kind of this weird, awkward feeling, and it's like, oh, what's actually happening? So it's not so much a matter of the scale. Um, it's a scale in the con- context of the integration. And mm-hmm. obviously, you guys have both mentioned, like, uh, larger-scale events that provide opportunities for all that different stuff. Awesome. You get to see so much different stuff. It's so much more of a different visual experience that goes on with it, uh, the way in which you can interact with different components of what, what's happening. Um, all great stuff. Yeah, I agree with that. Conrad Nelson says that uh, reenactment would be better if we had more immersion events slash stricter accuracy standards, even with public events. Some of the stuff that events let slide make a mockery of the whole hobby and do a disservice to history and the people that we're supposed to be teaching. You can't see it, but I'm like standing up and applauding in the background right now. (laughs) Uh, Great statement. Um, Personally, I couldn't agree more with that. I agree. It's fantastic. Um... I've seen a lot of bad stuff in my time in this hobby. Um, that said, I think locally we're rather fortunate that I think we do have a lot of immersion events. Um, and we do have a lot of, you know, the units here um, have pretty high standards. Um, but, uh, yeah, even at some of the public events, you know, I've seen some truly, truly cringeworthy things. So, Yeah. You know, my feelings about this are pretty nuanced. You know, with regard to more immersion events, we could have where I where I live, us, we could have more immersion events, yeah. and we, 
what we need is more people to go to the events yeah. that we've got. And more large-scale immersion events. And more large-scale large immersion events. events. Yeah. Um, that have the ability to integrate technical non-combat roles into them. <laughs> um, with, with regard to stricter accuracy standards, you know, I, I kind of have mixed feelings about that, too, because um, a lot of events that I've been to that purport to have really strict accuracy standards, there's just like always authenticity compromises that happen. And I think sometimes people might get daunted by what they perceive to be really high standards when the reality of the event is that they would have been fine. Yeah. And I think sometimes stricter accuracy standards translates into like online posturing and elitism, but doesn't translate into more authentic stuff at the actual event. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. uh, yes, I would like events to be more realistic. I would like events to be more authentic, but I don't know that authentic, that accuracy standards in their current form. I just, I'm just not sure. You know, I think it's, it's, it's easy to say it, but it's a lot harder of a thing to really make it happen. Sure. Like, you know, let's say we did an event where you have to show a front and back picture of your kit. And we can make sure that everybody's kit is absolutely perfect. It doesn't mean they're necessarily going to be behaving in an authentic way at the event. Sure. Which to me is more important. Sure. You know, I can look past somebody having the wrong bales on their mess kit. It doesn't ruin my good time. Yeah. But if somebody is... Um, it can't take themselves seriously. That, that ruins my good time. Yeah. You know, and there's no, I don't know about any accuracy standard that says, well, you have to take yourself serious. And I know somebody out there is thinking, well, there's pictures of German soldiers joking around and it's like, sure, but like there's a time and a place for it, you know? And when you're pretending that you're, you know, in, in foxholes in the front line, middle of the battle. Sure. You, you know, know, I'm sure that like gallows humor and stuff is a thing, but you know, some stuff, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it, like I say. Um, previous podcast guest, Rudy Langer, suggests improvised dissemination of goals slash objectives from the overall commands down to the smaller unit levels. This is a bit of an oxymoron, but I'd like to see less individuals aware of the main goal so that the, so that the smaller units have broader objectives that, when compiled, complete the overall objective. This would allow for less chiefs in the kitchen, but also allow for the smaller unit heads to make their own decisions and next moves based on their objectives. This would give smaller unit commanders more flexibility and freedom while still completing the end goal. I think uh, that's a I think that's a great point. Um, again, I feel like this needs a certain sense of scale to do. I mean, you need exactly uh, what I was thinking yeah. of the scale. I, I, I think uh, Zachary's comments about scale we're going to be coming back to a lot. Yes, yeah. because um, yeah. I think it dictates so much stuff. And um, what uh, what Rudy just suggested and talked about, um, I mean, I think it's great ideas. I think it would allow for it does allow for flexibility. It does allow for some yeah. things to happen. Um, but if you have a relatively small event, that's going to break down pretty quickly, mm. I think. Um, so it comes back to an issue of scale. Yeah. I think you need a critical mass of definitely more, def definitely 20, 30 people perhaps, um, at least on one side um, or in one unit, um, perhaps more to, uh, to, get, uh, to get a better sense of that. I think what Rudy is discussing here is some pretty high-level reenactment theory. Mm. And... You know, I I understand it, um, but it's so far removed from my experience yeah. as a reenactor that I yeah. can't even really, you know, the, the, even the idea of getting to that point is like beyond, sure. you know, where we are at, basically. Sure, sure. Um, sure. Most of the tacticals that we participate in are just like light years away from, I mean, like break, breaking down what he said, you know, he's like, 
talking about broad, you know, smaller units having broader objectives that when compiled complete the overall objective. How about having an objective? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, that alone is like more than we can ask for. Instead sometimes. of run to the sound of the guts. Or just like yeah. we're just out here yeah. or yeah. whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. No, that's that's reasonable. That's reasonable. Drew Huebner suggests mobility, such as an event over a weekend where everyone packs with the expectation of having to set up camp in a completely new location from the previous night and prepare positions as such. Interesting. I've always wanted to do this, and I feel like it's entirely theoretically possible, just people don't want to do it. Like, I've only done a couple of events in my life where I, like, bring everything into the field and just, like, sleep on the ground. Um... I actually did two this summer, um, one in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, another in Indiana, and that was it was cool. Um, but I feel like, first of all, like like the participants have to want to do it. Um, it's kind of easy to just like set up a cozy camp um, if you're used to doing that. It sounds awesome to me. I mean, it's something that's so um, commonly encountered in veteran memoirs. It's something that's so typical of the experience of an infantry soldier, especially on the Eastern Front, you know, covering the ground they had to cover every day and just stopping where you were. We've we've talked about doing this at our Haydenville site. Sure. Um, We did kind of do it at the Gettysburg event. Yeah. Well, we didn't. We didn't really do like a mobile event. Yeah. You know, but, but we were talking about doing this at, at our uh, Haydenville site, where we would start from our our like bunker position, move out in the morning, and basically go all day until we get to sure. a place where we can set up. Sure. Um, still possible. I mean, I'd love to do an yeah. event of a large scale with that. Still possible. And also, here's you know, some, he, I think he's onto something here because oftentimes he, he, I might even say this, get jaded, and be like, everything's been done. You know, yeah. everything has been done. Has there been a large scale event like this? I don't in World War II reenacting. I'm not aware of it. Yeah, where you're mobile, where it's like all day on the move, and then stop and go to sleep. Be cool. Well, not at least in this. Yeah, part I mean, of I think my knowledge. Um, this is a really cool idea. Um, and again, I'm going to go back to the scale thing. I think this one would depend on the scale of, of the site. Uh, you need a big enough site to make this kind of, yeah. to make it really worthwhile doing. Yeah. Um, and one of the other things that would be a little bit problematic about it is the, the, the actual mobility part, because usually, you know, most event people show up with their vehicles and they, you know, they drop stuff and they unload it and they go back and put everything back in there. Um, Whereas, you know, wartime reality is you have a vehicle to help move things around and stuff. Uh, you would kind of, unless you're going incredibly light, incredibly, incredibly light, you would have people wanting to move bigger items um, uh, with, with, you know, modern vehicles or stuff. Um, but I certainly think, you know, going on a, a smaller scale level, uh, we actually had four people in a Zelt setting up in a different place on a different night. That'd be a really, really cool experience. Uh, and I'd love to see that happen. Sure. Totally. 100%. Lance Wilson says, I reenact French and Indian War and would love to see everyone clean shaven. Easiest damn thing to do for an impression, and so many have beards and goatees. <laughs> so that's like a French and Indian War reenactment thing. You know, there are guys in um, World War II reenactment who have totally incorrect facial hair. I think that's true across all reenacting, you know, just incorrect facial hair or hair in general for the period. And yeah, I. I, I kind of turn my nose up when I see somebody with totally incorrect hair and no excuse. 
you know, there's people out there right now just screaming at their yeah. radio being like, they had mustaches. And yeah. it's like, I get it. That's true. Like they did. These things existed in like certain settings in yeah. a certain proportion. And like, yeah. I'm never going to call someone yeah. a fart because yeah. they have a 1940 style groomed mustache. Yeah. If somebody is out there um, pretending to be a German infantryman with a beard looking like he's in ZZ Top, you know, or it's like Santa Claus, look, you know, a paratrooper looks like he does Santa Claus on the weekends. That's like not, not going to win. Yeah. That's not a win for me. Yeah. Billy? Yeah, I mean, nothing else to add to that. Um, Sam Stein says, People's kit actually looking like soldiers in the field instead of the parade ground. Dirt, sweat, leaves, dust, all the grime from living outdoors. Can we talk about my uniform? Well, that's it. <laughs> you are a base of the model for this. Yes. <laughs> Billy is the dirtiest, uh, most leaf-covered uh, grime, you know. Vulture shit? Yeah. <laughs> um... Yeah, uh, I'm going to jump in on this one first. Um, this is uh, somewhat of a pet peeve of mine, too. Um, and I, you know, I get it. Everyone has different approaches, whatever it is. But, uh, you know, I, a lot of people have multiple different tunics, multiple different uh, field gear configurations. Um, I have always just sort of stuck with one. And one of the main reasons I've done that is to, you know, aside from the, the aging that I done when I first got it, was to, you know, really establish a lived-in field-worn look. Um and as you heard both uh, Chris and Ben men just mentioned, like, I've really done that. Um, you know, I'm kind of notorious for that in our area. Um, uh, but, you know, I go to a lot of events. Um, you know, I do a lot of dirty work with my uh, uniform on when we're at events in terms of setting up or breaking things down. Yeah. Um, so it's, um, you know, it's definitely sort of uh, my look, if you will. Um but, um, yeah, it is, it is kind of strange to always see people in, you know, very pristine, um, uh, uniforms, not that they didn't exist when things were issued new, but it's, uh, it does seem to be a little bit more of a reenactor as you see a lot of that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, our, our unit is big on artificial weathering, you know, to make our kit look more realistic. Um, you know, I've written a lot about that. I do that with my stuff. Um, I mean, ultimately I agree with Sam here that, you know, guys who, I mean, look, we've all seen it. Guys have been reenacting for two years, three years, maybe more. They mostly do public displays. Their gear still looks so exactly the way it did when it came out of the box from at the front. You know, that's to me not, I don't look, I don't draw inspiration from an impression like that. I'll put it that way. Even, I mean, say you get like a pair of wise traps or something like, even if it's new, you can oil them. Um, something right. a soldier would have done and even if you've only worn them a handful of times, the act of oiling them will make them look better. Um, yeah, but basically I have nothing else to add on this other than what Philly said. Adam Packard writes, Enforcement of realistic body weight standards and physical ability to replicate actual soldiers. Long pause. Uh, I'll just throw out there, you know, sure. He's got a point. People are too fat. Um... You know, having said that, there are World War. I'm speaking here from a World War II German perspective. They didn't have uh, physical fitness standards the way that they didn't have like physical fitness tests. They had physical fitness classifications. They give you a physical, determine how fit you were, and then assign you to a unit. So depending on how fit you were, um, you might get assigned to a frontline infantry unit, or you might get assigned to some kind of 
garrison unit in the field, a garrison unit in the homeland. Basically, there were roles even for fat guys. There were fat people in Germany during the 1930s, during World War II with rationing. Obviously, people were losing weight, but there were still fat guys. Um, for me, you know, I'm not going to try to make the claim that uh, reenactors are not more fat than World War II German soldiers. The, the reality is, is that 21st century Americans, which is my reenactment background here, are more fat than um, people who lived in Europe during a time of wartime rationing. Um, I guess, you know, I, I alluded earlier, I think maybe reenactment is getting smaller, Um in World War II Germany, they needed every man that they could have to be a soldier. As a result, uh, they weren't able to really have like strict physical fitness standards. They had to take everybody. I think we reenactors kind of have to take everybody too because we need everybody that yeah. we can get. Yeah, I agree with that. Billy? Um, yeah, I don't really know what else to say on that one. don't really have anything to add here. I think Chris Prewell said everything I got to say. Werner Beeling writes UFOs. This is a reference to one of my other hobbies. Um, Casey Hogan, who has previously been a guest on the podcast, uh, actually found a really interesting UFO sighting report in a World War II German soldier's memoir. Uh, so if we were portraying that specific scenario, the presence of the UFOs would make it more immersive. So I wanted to back up a little bit here, um, just to clarify, like the... The premise of this particular episode of the podcast is what would make uh, reenacting events better. Is yeah, that correct? Yes. All right. So, you know, I love events where something weird happens and you can't really explain what's going on. There's maybe some sort of weird apparition you see across from you know, the fort. Um, you know, what's going on? You get a little bit spooked out. If we were, uh, you know, doing some overnight thing, we're out on observation doing, we're just doing some bush bear and a large UFO came down in the middle of the field, that would absolutely make the event better for me. So I 100% support this. If we can make it happen, let's do it. Sure. I can't agree more. Yeah, it would make yeah. it more memorable. Yeah, I cannot, I cannot agree more. Scotty Smith saw it. I'm sorry, I can't pronounce this for some reason. Scotty Sixsmith says, less BS in fighting and squabbling within groups and between groups, and more cooperation would, I think, make things a whole lot better for everyone. And that's what Mike had said. Yeah, that's Mike's sure, writer's comment. Sure, yeah, sure. Uh, which, which, of course, we agree with. That's, you know, there's a, I think we'll probably see some other comments like this that yeah. reenactors need to cooperate better. I think everybody yeah. knows we could do a better job working together as a team. Uh, David Bowen says, personally, I don't want to know when combat is going to happen unless my side is making the attack. I'd also like to see events organized in a way where the terrain is utilized to recreate the environment of the battle. I've been to too many events that were supposed to be a specific battle and ended up being two camps far apart from each other with a big field in the middle. If you're doing a battle where one side was encircled, actually have their camp surrounded. Mm -hmm. And what he's, what he's talking about here is, I think, um, with regard to like making the battle scenario match the reenactment scenario. Sure. It's based on the idea that as reenactors, we are a small number of people representing a much larger body of troops. And there probably are ways that you can incorporate, um, aspects of that larger story into the much smaller scale of reenactment. Sure. On the other hand, you know, when you're dealing with 20 people versus 20 people, yeah. 
almost anything can be yeah. can be justified in a sense. Yeah, like it's small action within a larger battle in which perhaps, you know, even if the battle was lost by one side, like in the reenactment, another side could, could achieve a victory in like an attack, which could be contextualized as being like a small counterattack and larger uh, in a larger battle. But that said, I mean, I feel like I've seen like, I've seen scenarios and like the scenario is like, Eastern Front 1944, and so, like, the Soviet numbers should be huge, and they should be, like, well-equipped and on the move, and, like, the Soviet number is actually very small, and the Germans are, like, mass- massively outnumbering them. So I feel like sometimes you got to play uh, the hand that you've been dealt in terms of, you know, who shows up. I, 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 there's, like, a bigger point that he's making, I guess, which is just, like, the organization aspect, yeah. which is I think everybody would agree that events should have more organization. Sure. He says... Uh, I don't want to know when combat's going to happen unless my side's making the attack. You know, that kind of stuff is definitely something that reenactment event coordinators could incorporate, you know, sure. an event you organize in a way in which the terrain is utilized to recreate the environment of the battle. Um, you know, we've all, I think and anyone who's reenacted for a long time has done some events where the terrain and the event site are just a really poor match for the historical analog. Sure. Yeah. I was going to say like that, that, um, it kind of presupposes a uh, connection between historical reality and what yeah. side you're on. I um, did, you know, certainly if you could match those two up, awesome. That'd be really cool to do. I did a reenactment in uh, Spain, um, which uh, the terrain looked like a spaghetti western, and it was supposed to be Normandy. Um, <laughs> and you know, but like, well, that's I, what, you, I, like I, this is splitting the difference. Yeah. Like you got to play the hand you dealt. Yeah, play the hand you dealt. Like so. what you know, I guess they could do Italian front events yeah. or whatever. Yeah, but it's very limited. Like yeah, know? sure, and we're sure, sure, sure. So like, play the hand you dealt. You know. Chris Canning says, stop GI reenactors walking down the middle of the battlefield, firing their Colt 1911 John Wayne style and not dying when being shot at. <laughs> Chris, I've been there, bud. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, that would make events better. It definitely would. It would make events better. Like, if they didn't do that. If, if they, they did not do that. that. Yes, exactly. They didn't do that. Um, I'll tell you what I personally found made events better for me is when I was able to manipulate my own emotions where I stopped caring about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Carl Porst, one word, vehicles. Uh, you know, uh, Ben, you were telling me you went to a reenactment recently where the presence of a vehicle or vehicles on the enemy side created an increased sense of dread and sure, enhanced sure. the realism. Sure. I mean, I was sitting in a foxhole and I was told the Germans were about to attack and I was, you know, fatigued. I just got there. Um, and I wanted to eat, uh, my mess tin full of soup. And then I hear this sound of an engine emanating ominous trees. And I'm just like, time to, time to make my foxhole deeper, you know, like <laughs> time to like burrow, burrow into the ground like a rodent, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, that was cool. Vehicles are a double-edged sword, too, though. You gotta yeah, maintain, that, that you gotta track what I was them, thinking, you know? too, is, I mean, like, um, there is a, you know, the previous, previous, uh, comment about the GNI raid actors and John Wayne, um, you know, that can sort of take place with vehicles, too. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that can be a real nightmare with some things, but they can also add some great realism, as Ben pointed out, too. I mean, um, it's double-edged sword, 100%. Yeah, yeah and, um, I was gonna say, um, 
you have to maintain them, you know, that can be difficult to do. Um, they're expensive. Um, so like either somebody needs the capital to purchase one or multiple people go in on one, which can sometimes create, you know, strife or, uh, over what wants Gotta to charge you. Unit twos, the unit yeah. twos are expensive. Yeah. You know, uh, it's all happy in its own. I have total respect yeah. to the vehicle guys. They got big toys. Yeah. Um, me personally, if a World War II vehicle fell out of the sky and landed on my yard, I'd sell it. Uh, you know, so it's, I agree. For, for the guys who who make it happen, total respect. Yeah, I respect people who are mechanically inclined, but that's yeah, not you, my forte. Sure, you, know, you kind of have to be like a gearhead. All right, here we have a little bit of a longer one from Win Evans. He writes for public events. Make more efforts to start new events. Sure, that's easier said than done, but getting the ball rolling is the hardest part. In my state, there's a very small World War II reenacting scene, but through contacting local museums and putting on small events with less than a dozen reenactors, we've started to see a large impact. Events are starting to grow larger with more attendees every year, barring last year because of COVID. So much so that now other museums are reaching out to us to host events with them. For private tacticals, more immersion-style events, it doesn't have to be a massive flip to a hardcore campaigner-style overnight, but little things like actually enforcing basic authenticity requirements and putting a bit more planning into all aspects of the event beforehand to limit interruption of the environment. I say this as someone who's assisted in organizing and planning events for a few years now. These are very achievable goals. The hardest part is getting everyone on the same page and committing to the effort improving events requires. It sounds like a large part of his question is getting at uh, public events and well, that's the first part of it. Yeah, um, at the first part of his question, and yeah, I uh, I think that's that makes sense. Um, there's a, there's a lot here, and uh, I think the the part you made in the, your last sentence, the hardest part is getting everyone on the same page. It goes back to what we started with Mike Schneider. Uh, his first his first thing is you know getting everyone to work together um, is you know definitely going to help. Again, as I said earlier, make everything run smoother and be a more well oiled machine. Um, the public event stuff, uh, it sounds awesome. It sounds like you're doing some great stuff with that in terms of getting things to turn out. Um, and you know, it's that sort of initiative and uh, drive and effort, which helps grow the hobby. Uh, so it's great to see you're doing that. Um, mm. and you know, if people have the means to do it and they're, they're local, I really absolutely should, cause it's mm. going to help, help everyone in the long run. Um, looking at the private tacticals part, um, uh, what's going on here? I'm just rereading More immersion comments. style yeah. events. Um, yeah, some of the stuff we've, you know, we've touched on a little bit other in terms of the authenticity requirements and, you know, the planning. Um, well, he, he says actually enforcing basic authenticity right. requirements, which is a huge thing for me. You know, minimal basic requirements that you then actually enforce. Yeah. Right. That, to me, yields more dividends in terms of overall authenticity than anything I've ever seen done personally. Right. Sure. I agree with that. The, 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 the draconian standards seem to maybe discourage some people and then um you might have some people that slip through because the rules are so obtuse you know you make the minimum and basic and if someone can't do minimum basic kick them out in my experience that leads to a good event yeah yeah i think that's reasonable you know, he says he's contacting local museums and putting on small events you know and he is a person who has assisted in organizing and planning events i think what well, one of the things that i think would improve reenactment is if we had more people like Wynn Evans doing that stuff. Exactly. Sure. Sure. Renaud Raymakers says, maybe it's a thing only in Belgium, but a small number of groups here trying their best to make it as authentic as possible with display, uniform, equipment, rations, 
to then see the majority of the groups use a mix of modern stuff, incorrect uniforms, etc. Very sad for those who do their best. I've definitely seen that here in the States. I don't think that's uh, exclusive to Belgium. Oh, yeah, no. I'm, I'm, and I'm sure there's probably somebody in Belgium listening to this yeah. thinking they never saw this, and I understand sure. everybody's experience is different, right? It's Your mileage may vary. I've been to some events where everybody's authentic. I've been to some events where nobody's authentic. I've been to some events where, like, there's a there's a mix. And, you know, one talks about the difference between sort of hardcore versus mainstream or reenactor. I think that's kind of might be what he might be alluding to here. Um, and Look, I've definitely seen events where yeah. there's a lot of people there and there's some people hitting it out of the park yeah. and what they're doing is like buried under a mountain of extremely non-authentic, you know, people who aren't trying. Yeah. Yeah. That sucks. It does. I think, I mean, I wish I could say there was ways to improve this, but I feel like this is just always going to be the nature of reenacting. Um, sure. Do the do the the guys who are trying hard to do their best? Do they just not go to the event? Yeah, you know, I, that or sometimes do they, happens. That does sometimes happen. Yeah, but but the, the other people who aren't trying, they're just going to keep going to the event and doing a lousy job. Sure. You know, do the uh, do you go and try to lead by example? Yeah. Well, frankly, there's always going to be a mix of people in reenacting. There's always going to be people who are new to the hobby. Yeah. There's always going to be people who have been doing it for. 40 years and still don't care. Sure. You know, sure. there's going to be people, people new that care and don't care. People have been doing it for decades that care and don't care. Yeah. Um, I agree with that. I, you know, I think like something we talked about before, like enforcing authenticity standards. Yeah. yeah. With that. Yeah. I agree with that. Billy. No, good. Richard Smansky says, I would like to see more time taken for teaching slash learning. Far too many reenacting units spurn any drill, from basic rifle to unit and formation drill, to classroom style learning. Even classroom style is important. Things like, what does your Zolbuk actually say, yeah. etc. Having a culture of wanting to learn the basics and reinforce them at every event would help a lot of units. Uh, Richard, we're all sitting here nodding our heads at this comment. Um, uh, yeah, I think you touched on some great stuff here in, in this, um, and I think it would make events better. Um, uh, there's so much more to reenacting than just putting on a uniform and going out in the field. Mm. Um, and it involves everything from, um, you know, learning some, you know, basic German, not hard to do. Um, uh, you know, some real simple stuff. Um, uh, and to, you know, again, knowing what's in your soul book, knowing what's going on with that, just even knowing some, some real common things related to that, um, are all things I think that help create a little bit more of a mindset in terms of what you're doing. And then once that is in place, it kind of spills out into how things actually manifest in the field and that kind of, uh, uh um, set the tone as an example, even if it's even your own unit in terms of how you're approaching an event. And uh, sure. um, I agree with all this stuff. Anything that I could say would just be repeating his points over in different words. I think it was perfectly stated. Yeah, I don't really have too much else to add on this other than just like it's uh, – I feel like some people just now like they focus on like what model of uniform they're wearing. and That wouldn't have mattered to the soldier in World War Two, and, you know – stuff like what's in his soul book would have been much more uh, relevant to his experience and could enhance the experience of the reenactor. You got to learn the basic skills. Yeah. And drill as well. That's, you know, that's definitely something always to improve upon. Um, to me, drill is super crucial yeah. to reenactment. Looks great when everybody can do it, you know, and uh, do it, like it the forms, same way. It, it helps with discipline in your reenactment group, just yeah. like it helps with discipline. There's a reason why militaries army. have done it for, yeah. you know, millennia. Um, 
It brings yeah. you together. We're working as a team on yeah. thing. Elon is pretty cool, you know. Je ne sais quoi. Harry Bolpit <laughs> says, higher standard for event organizers when choosing what groups can display at their events. Also, for the hobby to take a strong stance against neo-Nazis within the hobby. I mean, I think locally we take a pretty strong stance. I don't, I, yeah. Um, I can't say I've actually gone to an event and, like, met anybody who espouses extreme views who, like, isn't immediately ostracized um, for that. I mean, I don't really know what a neo-Nazi is, uh, and in today's world, that seems to be a term that can have a lot of meanings, yeah. and it's changing all the time. Um, I think that some people might say that if you dress up like a World War II German soldier for fun, you're probably a neo-Nazi. Yeah. You know, so to me, it becomes kind of subjective. Yeah, uh, I would definitely be in favor of the hobby taking a strong stance against anyone using the hobby as a vehicle for any modern political anything. Yeah. If someone's coming to an event and they're uh, handing out flyers or campaigning for a candidate, I'm not. I'm not pleased, and I don't care who it is. Um. Higher standard for event organizers when choosing what groups can display at their events. Um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of, you know, people want higher standards, it sounds like. Yeah, that's all reasonable. That's all reasonable. Mark McKenzie suggests invite public to do drill with the reenactors. More interaction. <laughs> I don't know about doing drill. Um... Well, on the one hand, it would be cool to have a more immersive, you know, interactive thing for the public when they come to a public display event. Like, what he's talking about is very much in keeping with modern theories of museum studies. Chris, do you remember that time we went to um, Plymouth Plantation and yes. we did, like, the, the drill? Like, that yeah. was cool. I don't, that said, the World War II soldiers, I don't know, I feel like that's like walking, uh, that's like, maybe like walking a weird... Uh, a weird title. Where, where we live, you can't just, like, hand your rifle to somebody. There's yeah. some law against yeah. that. So. Yeah. Um, but maybe not uh, I would be concerned about someone dropping my rifle yeah. and doing something to it. But, you know, in terms of what you're saying about modern theories of museums, I mean, I think that's a good idea. I mean, we did stuff with a field kitchen uh, before we, you know, cooked food and then gave it out to people to try. Um, uh, you know, I've certainly done a public display. Sometimes I've had, you know, had people, you know, hands-on with my mess kit or something to look at things. Um um, but personally for me, I wouldn't really want to interact with the public. I wouldn't want to sit next to someone and do drill with them, especially yeah. if they're holding my rifle. Yeah. Yeah. Personally, I'm, you know, every unit has its own approach, but like for us, we're not going to be instructing. Like, I guess you could give out a fake rifle or whatever. I don't know. It's just, I feel like it. it I invite other units to try yeah. this. To take, to take a leave. <laughs> I applaud anybody who, uh, yeah. who, who is able to try help you. Uh, Philip Bishop says, events by us, for us. No public, tactical only. Well, those are my favorite kinds of events. Yeah, same, same. And and I've definitely been to my fair share in the last sort of couple of years, so even with the COVID situation. So, yeah. Yeah, those are, I mean, those are my favorite events too. No question. And, uh, you know, I know there are people out there who probably don't want to hear this, but I kind of feel like that might be the way the wind is blowing for World War II reenactment in general, yeah. whether we want it or not. Sure. As uh, going out in public wearing a World War II German uniform becomes more controversial. Sure. Sure. So I'll always be, I'll always be first in line for events like that. Sure. Um, 
Previous podcast guest David Stone says, A big event that draws people from all over, like The Gap, where barracks life, offices, and headquarters can be simulated. You can attend workshops or not. You can learn about switchboard setups, skis, and parachute harnesses, and fountain pens and typewriters from folks you only get to see once a year to see how other units do things better or perhaps worse than you. A big enough event where you can get a sold book and dog tag made, shoes repaired, insignia sewn, documents produced, all then and there. Actually, I don't think we did have him on the podcast. It's Doug Strong. <laughs> they have the same initials. <laughs> Got to get David Stone on this. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, back to the other comment about scale. Um, you know, the you know the gap was a great event um, where all this stuff came together. It was super fun. Uh, I'm shocked it lasted as long as it did, yeah. considering where it was and yeah. things that happened there. Um, it would be incredible to see something like this happen again. Um, but I think that also brings us back to the question of scale within reenacting yeah. itself and, you know, where we are as a community, uh, and sort of what, what, uh, would come out to an event like that, who would host it, you know, what the numbers would be. Um, uh, but again, you know, I'm just repeating myself at this point. I'd love to see something like that happen again. Yeah. The gap was, uh. Would you even call the gap an immersion event? I would. For, for yeah. people who maybe yeah. have, have not listened to us talk about this event ad nauseum on this podcast yeah. before, this the gap was an event that took place in a military base in Pennsylvania. More than a thousand reenactors went. It had a battle aspect and a rear area aspect, and in my opinion, it was one of the most immersive events that sure. existed. Sure. And sure. it it got shut down because we're not, we don't have access to that army base anymore because that was kind of the way things were going to go. And there yeah. was an injury. Um, that guy got hurt. And uh, it's just left a massive vacuum yeah. that nothing has replaced. Yeah. And, yeah, I think reenactment would be better if we had something sure. like that again. You, but, need a, you need a site, but a part, of the, a part of the draw of Gap was it had been going on since the 1970s. And so, like, people knew about it. Generations of reenactors went to this. And I'm sure there are sites which are, you know, conducive to this, but it's just like, You've got to get the ball rolling, and like something like this took a long time to build, and it's much more difficult to build this in the world that we live in. Doing um, it now, I think yeah. you need to have a bunch of money. Yeah, probably need to have a, a corporation of some yeah. kind, maybe yeah. a nonprofit. Yeah. You know, it's not an easy thing. It's easier said than done. Yeah, yeah. If no, someone builds it, I'll be there. Sure, absolutely. I'd fly to such a thing. One thousand percent. Same. Same. Dylan Williams says far less of a focus on material culture and more on cultural and economic factors, less about the stats of the K-98 and more about how World War I influenced the shorter design and how the use of slave labor compromised the quality of it. That's good. That was one of my favorite responses. I couldn't agree more, but we lose so much in this focus on the material culture. Sure. You know, uh, a lot of reenactors can tell you exactly how the design of the, uh, the Zulpan changed over the course of the war, but fewer would be able to give you a cogent answer about why World War II was fought or what it meant or, you know, how, I mean, cultural factors, yeah. like pe- people don't even scratch the surface. No, no, no. I mean, how many people are like delving into, you know, the zeitgeist of, you know, a German soldier in World War Two, and uh, like you know, World War One and its effects, and I mean, we the see final this. era, the rise of Nazism, all the political infighting and factions and such. You know, like that was a huge influence on these people. And then some people just 
All they want to talk about is, you know, how an M36 tunic is like fancier than an M43 tunic. You know, we, we see this all the time where people say, well, you know, all soldiers are the same. You know, World War II American and German soldiers are the same. And I served in the military and that's the same as being a World War II German soldier. But the reality is, is that German soldiers from, you know, Prussia didn't see themselves as being the same as German soldiers from the next state. Sure, you know, in sure, Bavaria, sure. very different. And, you know, this ultra-regional culture of Germany during the Third Reich sure. that is just totally lost sure. on probably almost everybody. And I mean, Dylan, I know you do uh, Soviet reenacting, and like that's like an, a hugely diverse, um, it was a hugely diverse country. Um, and uh, it had all these different sort of, uh, you know, somebody in Ukraine uh, probably had a very different view of the world than somebody from Belarus. Um and that's important to take into consideration. So, Billy, you got anything? Um, this is a huge can of worms that I'm trying not to go too deep into. Um, so, I think a lot of this stuff, um, you know, I take, personally, I take a very first-person perspective when it comes into reenacting. Um, and, you know, I wrote out my persona some time ago. It's 20 pages, literally 20 pages, single space in a Word document. I'm not kidding. Both these guys have seen it. I'm here with Yeah. Um, and, you know, I go really deep into um, social and cultural stuff from the area that my, uh, you know, my World War II persona is from. And I try to use that to inform how I uh, function and look at and interact with other people at events. Um, and, um, you know, I often get a little bit dismayed. Um, you know, it's already been sort of mentioned when, you know, I'm sitting around and a bunch of people are talking about, um, you know, the material culture of different runs of tunics, uh, modern day production. Um, uh, when, uh, you know, I am hoping to try to recreate some little vignette from uh, World War II of camp life. Um, and it's, you know, it's something that frustrates me on a regular basis. Um, but, you know, it's part of reenacting. You know, a lot of times, you know, people go out to these events and they don't get to talk about these things with other people in their daily life. So, you know, of course, they're going to have conversations about it. Um, and I don't think that, you know, these type of things, these kind of conversations should be banned from uh, events. Uh, it's just trying to find a way to balance them so that you can, you know, uh, talk about things that need to be talked about or things that you want to talk about uh, in a modern day context, but also trying to do something to kind of recreate the spirit of what it is that we're trying to do sure. as a reenacting hobby. I mean, really, your approach, I would almost call method acting. Um, it's, uh, I think it's brilliant, but it's definitely, it's definitely rather unique. And I kind of wish it cut on a bit more, but, um, you know, you will, uh, you won't, You'll sub even if you're talking about like your arrival on site at the reenactment, you'll like substitute modern words for you know words that are sort of more appropriate for the 1940s military life. Like, you'll well, this is something you know. Yeah, me and Chris and some people yeah. um, from you know our older unit used to all the time. You know, we'd be hanging out at a Taco Bell eating burritos, talking in dialect that was basically non didn't refer to anything in the modern context. We do this all the time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's something that, you know, it's fun to do. It's something I think is fun to do. It's something that I think is a little bit of a challenge. Yeah. Um, it's something that, uh, you know, going back to one of the other comments someone made about, on here is about, you know, like focusing on education, um, and always trying to learn new things. Uh, it all, it all ties together in some capacity or another. Um, you know, whether you're talking about doing drill, whether you're talking about, uh, event organization, whether you were talking about going back to Mike's first comment about interacting with other units, yeah. 
all this stuff is interrelated and interactive, sure. interrelated and, and finding ways and seeing how that all plays together, I think just makes it better for better experience for me at least. Sure. A uh, friend of the podcast, Juan Carlos Dominguez says, here's my suggestion for making events more enjoyable. Fuck the public. <laughs> Literally or figuratively. <laughs> uh, to a resounding yes for me. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Werner Stasen says, in Belgium, it's only jealousy and not working together. It's only hate. Nothing nice. Uh, sorry for you Belgian guys. I'm sure there's some cool people in Belgium. I mean, I'm sure you guys are great. Uh, Again, it goes back to Mike Snyder's comments, you know, like, it just, it helps to work together. It really helps to work together. Like, I think he's right about jealousy being an aspect of it. Sure, sure. There is a lot of jealousy that comes into play here. And egos, too, you know, like, especially when people are, like, leading groups and they might have some personal beef with somebody else and it just, it becomes like like a culture of infighting, you know? Sandor Visage says, we need minor access to rise up. On the one hand, uh, it's cool to see people doing other impressions. On the other hand, you know, you know what's cooler than minor access? Major, Major access. Autoclare <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tingley says, more accurate depictions of rear line stuff, comms, logistics, even stuff like officer schools, and more civilian parts of the soldier's life, like RZM shops and tailors, something more than just combat, combat, combat. I think that really goes back to uh, what Zach said earlier. Um, uh, basically, I think it takes scale, but I agree with it. Exactly what yeah. I was thinking. Well, you know, I'll say this. If you have 20 guys at an event, which is yeah. very small yeah. scale, you probably can't portray a realistic battle with 20 guys. No, but no, there's no. probably some realistic rear area stuff yeah. that you can portray. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And so... We lose so much in this. I understand it's like war reenactment, yeah. right? And the combat aspect yeah. of it is always going to be a possibility. But a lot of that combat stuff really leaves me cold. I, I've talked about this before in the podcast. I don't think it can really even be accurately portrayed. But there are rear area aspects and civilian parts of the soldier's life sure. or just daily life, mundane daily life stuff. That's the stuff that, to me, you can do. And yeah. you can do it right. And you can do it well. And it can feel real. The headquarters stuff, you know, any sort of uh, communications aspect. Um, the eternal century. Eternal century. <laughs> that stuff, that stuff yeah. is my, my yeah. bread and butter yeah. in this hobby. Yeah. And frankly, you know, I, I, you know, I probably said this before, but I find that people who are mostly oriented towards the combat action of reenactment eventually become disillusioned and move on. Yeah. It's like yeah. not... Like, yeah, it's fun when it's fire, fire, fire or blank. But when know, the novelty like, wears yeah, off yeah. for a lot of people, yeah. and you, you can't look past what, yeah. the more you learn about it, the more you realize how not real a lot of that stuff can be. Yeah, it was, I mean, like, it's, it's fun reenacting, but like, it was horribly traumatizing for these people who went through it. And like, I, I feel like some larger tacticals, which might have like, you know, a cool gimmick at the site can be more enjoyable, but like, you know, even that will get old eventually. So, yeah. 
Franz Bannerkamp says, get rid of the whole X impression is underrepresented, let's do that, or Y impression is overrepresented, no one can do it anymore. Every well-researched and well-put-together impression should be appreciated for its value. Every impression, as long as it's based off a real unit in the time frame and theater the event is set in, has some value depending on relevance and setting. No more generic reenacting. Ensure everything has a specific base and goal for an impression or a group. Also, ensure groups cooperate with each other more than they fight. It's small enough hobby and community as it is. There's no need for divides. Also, more of a focus on zoning and immersive events. Again, going back to Mike Snyder's uh, uh, initial comments about cooperation. Um, and well, also, again, going back to just like immersion stuff. I'll say this. Uh, the whole get rid of the whole this impression is underrepresented, this impression is overrepresented, I couldn't agree more with that. Sure. I personally made a resolution to myself a long time ago because I used to get into the same debate. Oh, this is overrepresented. More, we need more people portraying this. And it's like you're never, ever going to have this exact simulacra of World War II in miniature where everything that was there is portrayed in some specific proportion relative to what its proportion was in the real world. Yeah. You can't portray it all, yeah. and um, it's just it's where, where do you draw the line with that? You know what sure. I mean. You need how many uh, elderly people and babies do you need at the event? You know to rep to replicate how the world was back then. You know what I mean? Um, sure. So you know we need people in other countries participating in this event because there were people in other countries that participated in World War II. I mean the whole thing it yeah. becomes this it becomes absurd. Yeah, and it's like it just doesn't matter. It doesn't. It just doesn't matter. You know, I totally agree that every impression has some value as long as it's based off of a real unit in the time frame and theater the event is set in, you know, depending on the relevance. Time frame and theater relevance is the key to yeah. that, um, but couldn't agree more. Also, the thing he said about no more generic reenacting, ensure everything has a specific base and goal for an impression yeah. or a group. I don't believe that generic World War II German Army soldier is a thing that can be said to exist. Yeah, the amount of is so, you know time-specific, theater-specific, etc. Branch-specific. Yeah. 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 You know, it's... Um, we... It's it's better. Reenacting is more fun when it's more specific. It's more... It's more... feels more real when yeah. you're dialed in. Yeah. Better. 1,000%. Connor Deers says, For immersion events, one impression on each side, no exceptions. Sometimes having two units makes sense and can be done authentically, but far too many events let any unit with at least five guys show up and it doesn't look authentic whatsoever. Great piggyback from the last one. Um, this is a, yeah, this is kind of a, a weird thing. Um, you know, we just talked about literally the question beforehand about if you have the right theater and you have the right timeline that you can get certain impressions in. Um, it kind of goes back to scale, too. I mean, like, I agree. If you have a relatively small event that is supposed to be, I don't know, I'm just picking some random thing out of you, like, let's say Stalingrad, and you end up having 10 people at the event and, you know, there's nine different impressions, it's a little strange. It's a little yeah. weird and kind of adds, adds, has a cohesion problem. Yeah. Uh, where you draw those lines, I don't really know. Uh, it's kind of hard to say. Uh, you know, I love the immersion events that our unit does where it's just us yeah. and we can control everything. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, I don't know. I, I, but then again, I have some kind of nuanced feelings about it because there is this kind of unit based dynamic in world war two reenacting where having the unit model makes it so that, um, 
you can kind of hold people accountable. You can hold unit commanders accountable for their actions of their men. Um, it kind of ensures that people have been vetted in some way. It helps with safety. So, you know, I, I wouldn't want to throw that model away. I'd rather have five units each with five guys where I know the five unit commanders and know that they vetted and basic, gave basic training to their guys yeah. than have people showing up to the event with no idea who these people are, what their, what kind, what their agenda might be. You know, so... Uh, Taylor Posoni says, more German field kitchen setups. We were actually talking about that before we started recording. I would love to eat out of a field kitchen more often at events. Sure, sure. I don't it's think cool. anyone, anyone wouldn't. It's realistic. I mean, I think it, it's kind of a scale thing. It's also kind of a money thing. Like, Well, it's an availability, it's an availability of the field, kitchen, the field thing. kitchen thing. You know, some units look, have them, some units don't. Even if you don't have the actual vehicle, you yeah. could have, if you're doing an event, you can yeah. cook in a period yeah. way for everybody at yeah. the event. Which we have done, which we have done. But even for a larger scale event, you know, they, yeah. you can make massive quantities of soup over a fire or whatever sure. it's going to be. You know, heat up food. Um, no, we were talking about this where, you know, kind of piggybacking off the previous comment from Connor Deers saying, um, talking about events that are a bunch of units with five people. Yeah. You've got a bunch of pe five people groups all cooking their own meal. It's not how World War II was. No, no, no. Yeah, there'd be a dedicated staff, you know. Panelori Yunkers says, Churchill is a sad old man. My event is better now. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Villalobos says, Wood tip round so people know they're really hit. That would improve the experience and lead to more ducking slash digging up holes for cover, not just concealment. Yeah, but might, might also, need eye protection. Yeah, I was thinking yeah. eye protection, teeth protection, yeah. like some bad things could happen. Yeah. That. Why stop at wood? Why Let's stop at wood? Why stop at wood? <laughs> <laughs> Hannah Fuchs says I'm going to need vehicle prices to stop going up until I can buy all the shit that I want Kay, thanks that's reasonable <laughs> well I'll tell you there's a, there's some wisdom in there which is that the prices of a lot of the stuff that people need for reenacting yeah. is going up like the K the K98 prices are getting to a point that it's become a major barrier yeah. to entry. Yeah, it's 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 ridiculous at this point, you know. It's a problem. When I started reenacting in 2013, like I feel old now, uh, 20, 2012 Russian capture kind of eight to three hundred dollars. You know they were actually kind of frowned upon. Like you can do better than that. Like now it's just like eight nine hundred dollars. Thousand bucks. bucks. Yeah, like ridiculous. So yeah, you know, forcing people to buy a thousand dollars for an absolutely crucial part of a basic impression, which might actually be kind of garbage. You know, like sure. <laughs> uh, Reed Laverty says, different scenarios. France 1944 GI versus SS is so tired. I agree with that, but I think we're kind of seeing that. I mean, we're, we're, I feel like we're seeing more sort of like Eastern Front scenarios locally, um, nationally and internationally. I feel like I've seen the last few years more like, I don't know, 42 scenarios, etc. Like our whole unit has gone over to basically like our kit's good from 1942 to 1945. Um, so I think change is happening incrementally. Um, it's tough because GIs are such an important part of this hobby in the United States. Yeah. They really are. And, you know, in, in the area where I live, I don't see those guys that much. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a your mileage may vary type thing. Totally. Because GIs, for whatever reason, in New England don't exist. And so that's created a vacuum, which Eastern Front reenacting has really taken off. And 
personally, I'm I'm very much in favor of that. But um, I haven't gone to a yeah. 1944 GI versus SS event for yeah. a long time. I used to do tons of events yeah, like but that. That's, and I know in certain parts of the country of the world, those are the norms. Still. Straight up, yeah. yeah. So, or they're the, the only events. Yeah. So, well, that's it. Like, even when we pose this question, it's like we talked about, we even put right in the question, like, what would make events better in your region? Yeah. Sure. Sure. Jim Taylor says, I host a 1945 Ostfront event in eastern Kentucky along with the first SSLAH, and we are always short on armor. We have a vast area to play on, over a thousand acres, and the views are spectacular. Just have a rough time getting armored vehicles, save one or two. If you'd like to come out, we'd love to have you. And for you guys listening, if you're wondering about this 1945 event in eastern Kentucky, you can find the event page on Facebook. The event is called uh, Feuer auf den Berg. Um, I think I think online promotion is uh, is very very important. Um, yeah, um, look at the uh, I mean look at the Odessa sites, uh, which we've promoted the hell out of these last few years. I feel like that site is like it's very good, it's excellent, but um, I, pictures really pictures and captions really make everything. And so my advice to somebody who wants to promote an event is getting the big pages and, you know, take very good pictures that might show, um, you know, the, the topography that the site has to offer and maybe get some guys out there in uniform. And, um, yeah, that sounds great. Over a thousand acres sounds great. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, you know, for me personally, where we, where we sit right now in my mansion, Eastern Kentucky is probably just too far away for me to do an (laughs) event. Um, and you know, it's, it's tough. We're we're all kind of seeing this. There there are places to have events, but it's just reenact the population density of reenactors in a lot of areas is just not very high. Yeah, it's. An, I mean, I feel like we're kind of blessed here in the sense that we have you know a bunch of people who live in a relatively small area, and we can hang out on a fairly regular basis. Um, and there are other parts of the country, you know, that are might and it may be ideal reenacting country, but people live very far apart. And so it's harder to orchestrate events. Um, but even us hanging out on a Thursday night, isn't going to put tanks at events. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Jason Sloat says less infighting between individuals and units, more interaction between units, which is, you know, sounds like that's going to be the winner with the most votes yeah. in terms of what I people think. just call that the Mike Schneider rule. <laughs> <laughs> Eric Smith says too many events with too low attendance. I mean, well, I actually agree with him. Ultimately, if we, if we if we just set aside sure. what's possible in realities, what would make events better? More people. Sure. That's what I think. Sure, and I think some of that comes from maybe like conflicting events. You know, like there might be like two events on the same weekend or very close to each other. Yeah, you know, that this um, this is actually another real big can of worms that you can look at. That kind of ties back with yeah. um, more interaction between units. So. You could look at uh, Eric's comment here as too many events, comma, with too low attendance, basically saying that there are too many events taking place, yeah. so therefore the people that can go out to events get you know spread out too thin. Yeah. Um, where And if uh, there was better interaction between units, they might be able to plan things more strategically to get more people at an event to go back to the scale issue we were talking about earlier that keeps coming up over and over again. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, it's – it's uh, the scale is a thing, and having lots of events for little people, um, you know, is certainly a problem. It detracts stuff. If you've got more people at events, uh, you, more people at a given event, uh, it can obviously, you know, change dynamic a tremendous amount. But we've talked about it a bunch already so far here, so I won't – 
rehash it again too much. Uh, we've got a previous podcast guest, Andrew Worth, says, I think that we need to focus on slowly changing the focus and the culture of the hobby towards high-effort, authentically-minded events without elitism. As long as we continue to have amazing events and we don't treat new people like crap, this hobby will continue to grow comfortably. I think that more groups need to be willing to set aside drama and disagreements and work together. I think that a lack of inter-unit cooperation is the biggest hurdle towards large, great events. As the old Soviet song goes, glory to those who look forward. (laughs) I like that. Um, I like that. The Mike Schneider rule. Here we go again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, I agree. Um, It's, it's, this is again, one of those things that's easier said than done. Sure. Sure. Um, the the trend towards like elitism, posturing, gatekeeping, like, if you will, in a yeah, sense. Well, you know, yeah, gatekeeping yeah. can be a good thing and a bad yeah. thing. And you know, Andrew's idea is is that as long as we have amazing events and we don't treat new people like crap, this hobby will grow. Sure. Andrew is coming from primarily doing Soviet, yeah. is faced with maybe a bit of a different hobby landscape at this yeah. time than the German side of this hobby. Having done both, I would agree. I mean, I think it's, 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 it is a different landscape as a Soviet reenactor. Um, perhaps more conducive, um, in, in, in some senses. Um, but yeah, I agree. I, I like the idea of, of slowly changing the culture of the hobby towards high effort stuff. Sure. I think that might be kind of how it is, has to be where it's gotta be. Uh, I think on some level it's like, this this hobby is it's it's really not getting any easier to do. No, no. And the opposite. In fact. If if you are going to get involved in it this time, you you kind of got to be in for a penny, in for a pound. Yeah. And like everybody, when they start reenacting, I feel like has some bad ideas about you know what. Uh, what reenacting should be. I remember I had some terrible ideas about re- what reenacting should be when I started the hobby. And instead of getting shot down, you know, like being sort of like mentored by people who've been in it a few years, I think is, 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 is key. And, um, I think yeah. most units that are sort of worth their salt do that and take that time and, uh, sort of reap the reward of getting, you know, better members, uh, who are, sort of uh for it uh chris what do you think philly rather um not trying to dox you around here no no sorry i was just looking at the next question um don't skip what's that don't skip ahead (laughs) um uh clarify the question what specifically asked me mike snyder rule yeah i mean i already commented on this question i know you want me to add more or he said everything he has to say about it. Next question, next answer rather, is from Neil Haver. He says, no more old fat guys in combat roles. I consider myself now an old, slightly fat guy, so don't get offended. Time for us to take a rear seat by doing logistics instead of combat roles. That means transport, communications, and so forth. Nothing ruins an event for me more than seeing an elite Wehrmacht soldier bursting out of his tarnung or a 60-year-old U.S. paratrooper oozing out of his junk uniform with a shock of white mullet sticking out the back of his helmet. In principle, I agree, although I think it's somewhat hard to... Basically, you can't tell people what to do. If somebody wants to reenact, uh, you know, Life's in Dota SS or uh, 101st Airborne or something, um, and, you know, they 
don't actually match what those people looked like in World War II, you can't tell them no. I mean, you can maybe encourage them, but uh, and people who are maybe sensible to historical realities will to align, but at the end of the day, you can't tell people what to do. That said, I feel like people in reenactings tend to find people who are like them, and um, I, I think unit culture is big on that, so, you know... I actually feel like in that in that way, sort of hardcore versus mainstream reenacting sort of sorts itself out. You know, I got a lot of respect for Neil Haver specifically. He's been reenacting longer than me. He's you know he's he's an unbelievable resource, and uh, he's not wrong. Yeah. In that, when you see, uh, look, I mean, were there obese guys on the front lines of World War Two, like? Probably not. Probably not. Really, not generally. But you know, to, he says nothing ruins an event more for him than seeing that. I, this is a subjective thing. Yeah. For me, the fat guy doesn't bother me so much. Yeah. I, I would be thrilled to death if people spoke more German language at events. Mm-hmm. You know, all German soldiers, pretty. You know, all the German soldiers in the German army spoke German. Yeah. And so, to me. Um, that to me, I, I value that more than I value somebody's physique, so to speak. Um, And look, we do basically a logistical role. Yeah. The German reenactment group that the three of us are in does a security role, which is basically a logistical role. And, you know, I've got this kind of sub thing where I do a clerk impression, which is certainly a logistical role, but just not every event is conducive to that. And I wish they all were. I wish that every event we went to had a thousand people and we could do our thing in the context of a larger operation. Um, you know, I would encourage people to look at what their physical fitness level is, look at what their realism level is in terms of their impression, pick something that's appropriate, pick something that makes sense for that. Like, um, you know, there were, there were definitely fat guys in the German army in world war two. Yeah. If you're a fat guy, maybe try to do something like that. If you're an old guy, try to do something that was suitable for an old guy, you know, don't, Maybe don't do in a, a unit that was made up out of teenagers if you're 65 years old. Yeah. But there were guys who were in the Wehrmacht who were 65 years old. And not just in the Volksturm either. There's a lot that people can do. Sure. Um, you know, it's it's tough. I, I get it. You know, some people would say that World War II reenacting is primarily visual in nature. And that's their opinion about it. To me, it's primarily about the experience. And if somebody is a zony guy, to me, it doesn't really matter if he is fat. You know? Sure. I get it. Like, he mentions a shock of white mullet. Like, we've all seen this. We have all seen, like, some straight up, like, Marlboro man slash, like, Santa Claus looking <laughs> Willie Nelson type dudes out there yeah. in the Waffen SS. That's, yeah. like, not how it was. Yeah. Get the Yukon Division. <laughs> yeah. So. So, you know, I just, I think it would be great. I think we've heard a bunch of people here today say that they would like to see events have more um, non-combat roles in general. And in my experience, events that offer realistic roles for people to do that are non-combat, people like are jumping at the chance to do those. Sure, sure, sure. Which I think is good. 
So the last answer that we got was from Isaac Keyboards. He says, better battlefields, the rear line stuff as well. I go to many public events where they allow the organizers to get creative with the environment, but nothing is done beyond some hay or a wooden pillbox. The event only looks as good as we make it. I've definitely seen public events where it's like a grassy field, well manicured, and you have German soldiers taking cover behind... Um, plywood defenses, which have maybe been crudely painted, or hay bales, which, you know, offer zero protection against even pistol rounds. Um, and, like, that sucks. But it seems like this question is geared sort of towards public events. Um, public well, battles look like total garbage. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen one that didn't look like total garbage. Yeah. Uh, you know, the reality of World War II reenacting is that you have, or what reality of World War II, right, is you've got massive formations of men doing their thing, yeah. or you have, uh, like concealed individual riflemen yeah. spread out across a huge area. It's like not something that people can really see. Yeah, people want it, like, sort of like, I think when people, when the public thinks of reenacting, they might think of, like, in a civil war, a Napoleonic war, where you've like lines of soldiers moving in like Napoleonic style columns across battlefields where you can see them. Um, and that doesn't really transfer well to World War, you know, the 20th century battle tactics because the soldiers would be in defensive positions where you can't see them. So there's like a, there's already a compromise there because what the public wants to see the participants, but you know, to make it in any way realistic, they can't. Yeah, like in World War II, the combatants were generally really far apart from yeah. each other in a sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, so how big is your public battlefield? Yeah. I, I get what Isaac is saying, that yeah. they could do a better job to make it look a little bit more realistic yeah. than the hay bales and stuff. But sometimes you can't dig a hole at the property because it's you because the reenactment is one weekend in the year, and for the other sort of 364 days, uh, it's like... You know, it's like somebody's property or it's like uh, a public park. And so you can't dig a trench or something. You know, he says the event only looks as good as we make yeah. it. But like you can, you know, you can you can only make dog shit shine so much. Yeah. 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 So closing it out, uh, Ben, what do you think would make reenactment better for you? For me personally, um I feel like definitely a lot of the things that have been said here, um, sort of inner unit cooperation, um, enhanced uh, sort of cultural knowledge of um, of, uh, of the country and the country that you're portraying, instead of just like I'm wearing this model of uniform. Um, yeah, um, I'd like to see definitely scale. You know, like. And you can't just copy everybody else's answer. Okay, really, what do you got? Sure. Um, I have uh, something that not a single person mentioned in this entire thing. Uh -huh. I would like to see more people do first-person personas. Mm. Um, and, you know, that kind of goes – that ties into a lot of other stuff. Um, but that would be uh, that would be something I would really like to see done. As for me, uh, I'd like to see more UFOs. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. All right. So thanks to everybody who responded to the question. Um, really enjoyed reading all your responses. Um, thanks to everybody for listening. And uh, thanks to Chris and Ben for coming in. My pleasure.
And uh, to everybody out there, I will see you in the field. You guys can say see you in the field, too. See you in the field. Abenziana, guten luck. Bye. Before we go, you may want to check out Fehler Kopf over at german-worldwar2.com. That is german-ww2.com, where they sell lots of pocket litter and a lot of cool paperwork stuff. And you can get 7% off of your next purchase there by using the discount code PODCAST2020, that is PODCAST2020, at checkout. Once again, uh, and as always, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing this podcast. Thanks, Mike.